Hey, this is Reza. This is Sandy. Welcome to the Stone Cold Sober Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome, everyone, to the 358th episode of the Stone Cold Sober Podcast. Reza, we are so close to an episode a day for an entire year. How does that make you feel? It's nuts. I, I've it? been keeping an eye out on that as we've, uh, I mean, it feels like a, it feels like we just broke into the 300s, but like, that's not, that can't possibly be true. We've been in the 300s for a year then. You know, we've missed right. a week, we've missed a week here, here and there. So it's, it's, um, I don't know, I would guess like 65 weeks maybe since we've been in the 300s. And yet it, you know, that, and that's a long time, first of all. Um, yeah, yeah. But it feels like I've really been eyeing that, that episode count for the episode per day for an entire year for a minute. For a minute and, now. Yeah. I know we've never I really mean, talked about just, it, but like, I'm also. Let's just be honest with each other. We're going to do yeah. this until we die. Um, <laughs> and so it'll be one of those art, art projects that didn't start out as an art project, but it became like this piece of like. Who are these two bozos who have been recording on average once a week for like 40 years? Do we just like beam this out into space and see what aliens pick up on it? It's like that uh, that Markiplier YouTube channel where they did a, a video a week for an entire year. And then I think it was something like that. And then mm-hmm. they deleted the entire channel. Like there's they, they didn't like uh, oh, archive wow. the videos or anything. I'm sure plenty of people have downloaded all the videos. Um, but there was, yeah, that was the concept. It was record a video at least mm-hmm. once a week or whatever, however often it was for a year or however however long it was, and then they deleted it. I think it was maybe like 100 videos is what they did, and then they deleted the channel entirely afterwards. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's something to, shoot, that's something to strive for. Um, not the whole deleting of the channel, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I wanted to talk about some, not some updates, but... Some some new things that we've been experiencing in the home buying space. And by home buying, obviously the apartment, and by apartment, I mean co-op. And so it is now February 6th when we're recording this. And we just saw a few more units today that, that felt pretty interesting to, to sort of talk about, like, as it pertains to how does one might make a decision, right? And Can I ask we a quick question, made quick it, question really quickly? Yeah. How many places have you seen this far? Thus far, do do you have an idea of what that number is? Twenty. Okay. Wow. Right there. Yeah. It, uh, how many places do you would you say you saw before? Uh, not 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 before you put an offer in per se, yeah, but yeah. like before you you entered uh, or ended up in this particular home. It's a good question. Um, we did two visits here. No, sorry. We did one visit here, and I think the first day we saw like six places. The next day we must have seen something similar. Okay. Um, and then we saw a couple the, – the next couple of days I think we saw far fewer. I'd probably say we were somewhere in the ballpark of 20 actually. And then when we – when we you know, the place that we, we eventually did buy, we actually never visited it in person before putting an offer in because, as you know, places get scooped up off the market, you know, effectively within like 48 hours. So, um, yeah, we, we saw I think three, three to four places remotely. And then ultimately made our offer on this location. So it was probably somewhere around 20. Okay. 
Yeah. It was just like far more condensed. Like we were, you know, it was like six or seven homes in one day, you know, back to back. And, you know, initially it's like, oh, this is exciting. And then as you start to like, you really, you quickly start to realize the things that you do and don't like. And exactly. initially it's like, oh, let's see every nook and cranny of every single home that we're in. And then you, you like, you can, you, you start to look at the, uh, the sheets of paper and you're like, this place is not, this place is going to be a waste of time. Um, and sure enough, usually you're right. And then other times, uh, it's like you see one or two rooms and you're like, yeah, this isn't it. And I'm ready to leave already. Right. Right. Um, so that's something that, like you said, once you start to build up that muscle of what you think you're going to like in the theoretical sense, and as you start to walk through more mm-hmm. physical spaces, you start to figure out exactly what you want and what you don't want. And, and that's something very uh, very consistent with our experience, I'll say. Some of the things that were just... I guess what you... There's a, there's a hard line. Uh, without, without getting too specific, I'll say... There's a number out there that essentially most uh, New York City real estate is bifurcated by, okay? Uh, and that number is a million dollars. And the reason why I say that is because there's this concept in New York City called the mansion tax. Any, any real estate above a million dollars, you have to pay a tax that goes directly to the city. It doesn't go to the building. It doesn't go to the previous mm-hmm. owner. You pay. You essentially pay a tax to the city. It's like a luxury tax. Right, um, right. That luxury tax ranges between one and I think it goes up to three percent. But like, if you were to buy theoretically a hundred million dollar place, right? Yeah. You pay a three percent tax on a hundred million, Oops. and that just goes to the city. Um, yes. Granted, there's a lot of places in the city that are, you know that many digits and that's just part of the cost of doing business and i'm sure if you were in the market for a hundred million dollar place three percent mansion tax of the city is is a cup of coffee to you at that point yeah yeah really quickly um it, that's a one-time that's a one-time fee it's a one-time like fee. At purchase it's a one-time fee at purchase and then anytime okay. you sell it afterward the buyer the next buyer would have to pay that as well i guess the crazy thing about that is it's just such a I mean, even if it's only one to three percent, it's still a large it's still a significant amount of money given oh, sure. what you have to put in for a down payment and everything oh, else sure. we've like that we've discussed. That that alone could you know, it, you're you're right. Like you're, you if you're talking about a million dollar home, theoretically people are people people have enough in the bank to support that, you know, to to cover that cost. But like let's say you're on the the lower end of that totem pole, if you will. Um, coming coming up with that one to three percent could potentially push a home out of your budget because that's something that you just have to pay. Exactly. Um. Sorry. And so, uh, when we talk about that sort of million dollar line. That's one of those bifurcating moments in the city. Okay. Now you can buy studio apartments up to more than a million. You can buy one beds, two beds. It's like, it's just one of those, like, I don't want to say arbitrary lines, but it's just one of those lines that exist. And so that's just another cost center that you'd have to take into account in addition to everything else. 
one of the things that we've been thinking about as we've been looking at places is we really like the idea or the concept of an open kitchen. The reason why we say that is because a lot of kitchens in the city are what's known as galley kitchen. Do you know what a galley kitchen is? I've heard of it. Um, but So if you Google galley kitchen, essentially, just think of it as a room where on both sides of a wall, there's like... Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, what's it called? Countertops, and it's it's very narrow. You know what I yep. mean. Um, yep. And it, it's meant to maximize the space that you really don't have. Uh, but as you can tell, with galley kitchens, when you're walking in, it, it can feel very tight and uh, sometimes claustrophobic. You know, you've got these heavy appliances. You might have to walk. You might not be able to walk side by side, so on and so forth. Uh, that's a very common setup in the city. Um, one of the things that we're very particular about is the fact that it feels very open concepty, you know. And so, yeah. similar to places in the suburbs, your kitchen is somehow connected to the breakfast dining area that's so open to the living room, family room, so on and so forth. That's just something that we also really appreciate. Where, especially if we're hosting people, you know, back to that concept of hosting people in this pandemic but just this idea of if you're in the kitchen and we're hosting a dinner party of some kind you're not like essentially in time out in another room you want to be able to be cooking and making stuff go but you're still having people that you can connect with right and so the idea of a of an open kitchen is great in theory but then there's a concept of all right well if it's a galley kitchen you got to ask is it a load-bearing wall and can we open it up to begin with because uh, yeah. you'll have shaft ways, you'll have load-bearing beams, you'll have vents that just have to stay there. And it can be prohib- no, I don't say prohibitively expensive, but it can be rather expensive because in order to say, let's just say you have a galley kitchen and you want to open up a wall on one side so it feels much more open, you're connected, okay? The first thing you got to do is hire an architect. You got to hire an architect to draw up the plans research the building's existing plans to figure out if it's even possible and draw something up. So that costs a couple of thousand dollars right then and there. And then you have to present those plans before you've done any real work. You're out a couple of thousand, but then you got to send that to the to the co-op board to get approved because a co-op board can say yes or no. Um, and they don't meet every day. You know, it's not like a nine to five job. They might meet once a month or whatever. And so you better hope that you get it. And then if they say yes, you also have to then present those plans to the Department of Buildings. Why do you have to do that? It's just so that city services can know how these sort of apartments are, are doing. There was a, a law a couple years ago where people were putting up a lot of like just temporary walls in places. And then there was a big fire. There's a lot of deaths because it did like what the apartment layout was didn't match the blueprints per se. And so essentially firefighters are essentially lost um and so that's one of the reasons i'm sure it's not the only reason but it's a contributing reason and so you have to present it to the department of buildings department of buildings right now is very backed up due to covid um so getting the licenses getting um getting stuff sort of uh accepted and what have you um and and then once you're approved Right, it's been many months since you've wanted to do the work, and then you got to go find a licensed contractor. And then we all know how in COVID with contracting work, are they busy? Of course, they're busy. Yep. You don't want to hire a not busy contractor. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. how much are materials and and this that and the other? And, and and can you even live in the apartment while they're demolishing a wall? Um, 
And so there's like all these things that, that, that can make a place that was rather expensive to move into that much more expensive to make it the place that you want to. And knowing, or rather not knowing how long Carolyn and I may want to live in this place, it just is another headache that you're essentially signing up for. And so that's one of those things where we're, you know, we see a galley kitchen and it's not our favorite, but we'll ask if we can knock out a wall. And so, all right, it stays in contention. But when we see an open concept kitchen, we're immediately drawn to it. A lot of counter space, a lot of storage space, hopefully full-size excuse me, full-size appliances. So we're thinking, it doesn't even have to be like a massive industrial-sized fridge, but a, you know, a full-size fridge, full-size range with a minimum of five burners. Yep. Um, and, and a full-size uh, dishwasher would be nice some places. It's very common to maybe get a four-burner range. It's a little bit smaller, which then means the oven's a little smaller. Um, where you might struggle to get a 9x13 pan in when you, you you know that a 9x13 is a very common baking size. Uh, and there's no way that you're putting a, baking, a 9x13 baking pan or sheet on an angle, right? Um, the other thing is these uh, half-size dishwashers, which can get really compact and not ideal, but it's just part of the game. You know what I mean? The other thing that you have to find out is, uh, well... For uh, for a budget, are you willing to live on the ground floor of, an, uh, of a building? And mm. so we saw a place is that, that actually that was... okay. There you go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was about to say that. Like, this, I feel like every I I don't. It depends on I guess the size of the buildings, but I I, I almost always imagine that most New York City apartments are not on the ground level. They're they're at, you know at least on like the second or third floor, like where they actually start living spaces. Yeah. So a lot of apartments are like that, um, especially rental properties where like the ground floor is a business or what have you or a lobby. But a lot of these like owning like condos and co-ops, they they have apartments on their first floor. And the thing is, it depends on what street you're living on. If the foot traffic's a lot, but the place that we saw today was on the Upper East Side. It was a little busy of an area. So while we were in it, when we got to take a look into the window before we walked in, but you were essentially the street was higher than your apartment, which means not a lot of natural light, which means that you'd have to get the special blinds where not only do they come from top to bottom, but also bottom to top uh, so that you might be able to let a little light in, but knowing that the sidewalk is a little bit higher than your entire residence, that there's always an opportunity for people to look into your apartment at all times. And the idea generally is you don't, for me at least, I don't want to say everybody, but for me, I'd rather not buy a place where the windows have to be, the shades have to be down the entire time. That just doesn't feel as welcoming and as opening, right? 100%, absolutely. And so, and that's actually one of the main screener questions that a real estate agent will, um, will pose to a prospective client. Are you willing to live on the ground floor? Uh, that and so knowing right that a place may be relatively affordable to us might not mean that selling it later will be as easy knowing that this is one of the main reasons why it might detract some from even wanting to see it and so that's something you have to think about as well the amount of closet space is also something very interesting obviously you know space in general is at a is, is a very as a, at a luxury and if you want a lot of closet space, you're, you're putting it in at the cost of something else. Um, one of the things that we're finding out is, how many, how many bathrooms do you have in your home? Uh, two full bathrooms on the top floor, half bathroom on the first floor, and then a uh, full bathroom in the basement. So, so three, 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 and three and a half. half. 
Three yeah. and a half, right? Um, we're looking at places that may have two full baths. Uh, sometimes okay. might have a bath and a half, but it depends on if you, it tends to be one of those things where if it has two full baths, something else is wrong with it. Um, yeah. and it's sort of, and the, what I mean by that is not to be detracting to two full baths, but it's one of those things where if you have a place and you're able to put two full baths, it's usually one of the better aspects of the apartment and something else is not as good for it to be at a sub $1 million price. Obviously, as you get more expensive places get larger, you get more bathrooms, you get more everything. You know what I mean? Some people have, like, we saw a place that was technically a two-bed, but it was listed for 2.5. So we didn't actually go see it. We saw it at the listing. And it was like, your corner unit penthouse, you have wraparound terrace, and it's like floor-to-ceiling windows. So you, not only do you have, say, southern and western exposure, but you also have like 400 square feet of wraparound terrace. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're living like you're on top of the world. Um, that's clearly way beyond the bounds of what we're looking for. Right. Um, and so, and I, I mean, at 2.5, I don't even know if I, regardless, regardless, at 2.5, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm buying a two bedroom. Um, the other things that we were looking at are, wow, what is the size of the second bedroom? Now, if you're looking at a true two, and by true two, what that means is this this layout, this apartment was meant to be a two-bedroom from the get-go, you're, you tend to be at around the 1.1 to 1.5 sort of range. What you tend to find below one is it used to be an extra large one-bedroom, but then they put up a full pressurized wall and they made it and they flexed up into a two-bedroom. The, the common phrase for that is a junior four because there's four rooms there's the the main the primary bedroom. There is the living room slash dining area. There's the kitchen, and then there's like the the other room. So that's that's how they what they mean by junior four. Uh, but more often than not, it's just a a one bedroom that they flexed up into. Two. It's important yeah. to note this because of that pressurized wall concept. Not everyone has created a full pressurized wall. What I mean by pressurized wall is essentially when you look at a room that you may be sitting in, you have a floor to ceiling wall with no openings of any kind. Okay. There are some places okay. that if you, so like stare at a wall across from you right now. Okay. And so you, you, okay. you, you picture an entire wall. Now picture maybe, uh, let's just say maybe in the top quarter of it, you take that out and you put in a window. Okay. okay. That's no longer a full wall. Okay. What that does though is it allows potentially the room on the other side that has a lot of natural light to let that light in. That's no longer a pressurized wall, but you can still consider and you could, you know, categorize a room as a second bedroom, but then you just know that you don't really have as much control over the lighting in this space because that is not a real window. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, there's other I things so. of like, what if uh, they put a bookcase up and they put a bookcase at, and they built a wall out of with bookcases and there's just like an opening in the middle with a curtain and they call that a second bedroom. Well, and I guess technically it's a second bedroom because you've sequestered this space with bookcases, but it's not a pressurized wall and that means that sound can go through no problem. It's like essentially one extra room and you've created a nook. Um, some other things are that we've seen is they might build a pressurized wall, but instead of connecting this edge of a wall to the other edge of the wall, they weren't able to do it because there's like, you know, a wall of windows. And so they leave like four inches open. 
But Reza, if you leave four inches open on a wall, is that really a wall if you can just like talk around it? You know what I mean? (laughs) And so, but you can still consider that a second bedroom. You just need to pay the money and get the approval to to close up that little bit. And that's a couple thousand dollars. Um, And so that's just some of the things that we're running into. Um, Also, I know we've talked about this. We've talked about this in the past, but the idea of pre-war buildings and post-war buildings. So... Uh, the uh, when I say like what is a pre-war building in New York City that is essentially a building uh, that was built in the period between the turn of the 20th century up until the Second World War. So that's what Google is telling you, but essentially up to like 1945, anything built before that is considered a pre-war building. What okay. does a pre-war building entail? Uh, it's going to be, it tends to be, uh, higher ceilings, which is a good thing because, uh, that's what they valued back then. Uh, but you might not have as well insulated walls. They also tend to be walk-ups that they had to retrofit an elevator in, which meant that they built a small elevators that moved really slowly. Mm. There's also no central air because central air was not something that was invented at the turn of the 20th century. So what you'll see is a lot of window units. Uh, imagine right. spending over a million dollars and having to put a window unit in. Not ideal. There's the other yep. concept of a radiator. It's essentially exposed metal that is powered yep. by and heated with steam and then heats yep. your entire apartment. But you understand having a nest uh, and hopefully having, you know, is it is it gas or is it natural gas powered? Uh, sort natural of gas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. You have a little bit more control over temperature, right? With, right. With... Uh, and you remember that, uh, that what was it, the studio apartment you visited when I ran the marathon? Yes. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but there was a, along, the, along the windows, there was this big white wooden structure that was essentially hiding the radiator. And essentially, if you have a radiator, oh. it's either freezing or it's a million degrees in the apartment. Like I would have the radiator on. You right. can't deter, you can't like turn off the radiator really. It's like there's one of these weird finicky things. And so in the dead of winter, it'd be so hot in the apartment I'd have all my windows open and it'd be negative ten degrees yeah. out. But it's like you just it's like mixing water when you're showering. It's just it is yeah, it, yeah. it is what it is. Um, right. and so that's that's what you get with pre war buildings, with post war buildings, obviously built after that, so elevators were already a thing. Air conditioning as a concept was already a thing. Uh, things were better insulated, especially as you get the old, newer and newer units. They tend to be like much better insulated with, with all this stuff. And and so that, that's really what we're looking for. And they're just the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side are both very family friendly. Uh, but the Upper East Side tends to be a little bit newer because it was just built out later in the city's lifespan. So a lot more buildings right. were built in the 60s and 70s. So they're all post-war, which meant that the modern creature comforts of ac in the building uh were there fewer there's still still some ac units that had to be in the window but a lot more what we call through the wall so they essentially designed this thing where it's a window unit per se but it's it's so they they sort of uh cut out something into the exterior of the building so you don't have to put in the window it's just it, it essentially is uh vacuum sealed to like the brick and it's just that area that uh, between that and the outside. And so it's a little bit less like you have to have a window unit up. Um, and some other things, like I said, elevator and what have you. And um, there's just 
in the Upper West Side, though, was built out earlier in the city's history. A lot of old school hotels were up here. Like this place was booming in the 1800s. And so a lot of these have now been retroactively changed to co-op buildings. People, this old, old New York City money tends to live on the Upper West Side more than the Upper East Side. And so finding a post-war building on the Upper West Side tends to be much rarer. And so when you find something that essentially allows for the modern creature comforts, but in a more desirable location for us, you kind of want to pounce on that. And we just haven't found that quite yet. Um, but we're still open. You know, our lease isn't up until November and uh, we're, we're early, which is good because we have a very good sense Definitely of what's good. available in the city. Uh, we're yeah. not like it'll take on average three months for a co-op to go from putting in an offer to then assuming that your offer got accepted to then enter into contract. Like being in contract, it takes around two and a half months to be just in contract. Mm. Right. Um, and it's just very different than buying a single family home. And I've talked about it in the past, but uh, that's really where we are right now where we're getting better and better about like instinctively knowing what we like and what we dislike. Uh, we've already, sure. you know, pounded the pavement. We, we've got good instincts of, yep, no, we can we can call it like we see it much more quickly. Um, and so it's just about as units come on, we can decide quite quickly if we want to see it that weekend or not. We're also learning. We did let one slip through our fingers, and this is my fault. The idea was, not the idea, but the detail, and this is the last thing I'll say. The details of this apartment were there was on Broadway, between maybe 75th and 76th Street, so right in the heart of the Upper West Side, a, a neighborhood I'd love to live in. Um, and when it came on uh, to market, I was like, oh, it's a little bit out of our price range. Can we make it work? You're hemming and hawing. And then by the time we were like, all right, let's, I think we can make it work. We go see it. Our real estate agent was like, they're not showing it anymore. They're already taking best and uh, like best and, and, and most. Uh, I think it was like, yeah. They didn't call it first and best. It was like best and best and best and highest. Best I and think? final. Best and final. Thank you. Best and yeah. final. And it was like three days after. I hate and that. So, by the way, I hate best and final. It, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, and so you, you can certainly hate it. I'm sure we're gonna hate it as well. And so I'll change my tune when we get there. But it was just one of those things where we I learned the lesson. Uh, if you want to see it, just go see it. Just you'll make it work. At least see the unit, and then determine if you're gonna make it, put an offer in, because the window to to put an offer in is not something you can control. Uh, you're you're right. playing an away game in that sense. You just gotta play to the best of your ability. And so that's that's all I really have to share. I'll say uh, I'll keep you and the I was gonna say the team, but I'll keep you and the listeners all updated <laughs> with uh, with what's going on. Um, but it's exciting. I think it's exciting because we haven't gotten our hearts broken yet. Um, I think there's a little bit of scar tissue that, that builds up at a certain point, but we're, we're, right. we're still we're still scarless at this point. And who knows what the what the future has to offer? But uh, we'll certainly keep you updated as we, as we go through this, and you know when we go through the process, uh, we'll, we'll tell you as, as much as we're legally allowed to tell you. I'll say. Yeah, that sounds good. I will say this, but the reason why I hate the best and final offer thing is because the sellers have so much power in this economy right now yep it's you know you 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 don't even have the opportunity to get into a bidding war with somebody so right there will be there will be times where you put your best and final in for a location and also i should say the other the the issue is with best and final you're often still trying to compete with yourself in like or figure out in your head what is the number above asking or you know what's the number relative to asking that will guarantee me this location and the one thing that you don't want to do 
is overbid because you overbid like let's say let's say you know again just pulling numbers out the air right let's just say it's a hundred thousand dollars and you you go like 120 right you go 20 percent over asking and the next closest offer was like 105 first you would never know that the the seller would have taken like 110 but it's still like you know you could really be pushing your budget at that point mm-hmm. taking a place on for 120 and feel like hey one did i make a bad investment decision here because you know are you going to turn around and try to sell this place eventually and be unable to sell the place for what you paid for it and is that going to bother you or like just the constant back and forth with yourself when you live there like could i have gotten could i've gotten the same place for a little bit less um exactly but the other the other thing that i think is interesting is just like thinking about some of the, the the um the places that you're seeing and just how old they are like the history in the city when we when i'm looking at homes at least in the in the area where i am there there's like no home that's older than like i don't know 50 years old i didn't see anything older than the 90s like mm-hmm. most of these homes that are built in suburbs and stuff everything is is like i don't know 20 to 30 years old so the thought of seeing a place that's like damn near 100 years old or even older than that it's just like wow you know of course there are things that you know no no central air you know using radiators for heating um it's just uh just interesting thought that 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 specific dynamic because it's not something that i really thought about myself exactly it's just it's a very different market and i think you essentially get used to the market that uh that you're looking in and Mm -hmm. and so it uh it's exciting it's exciting for its own reasons i'll say yeah all right. Well, unfortunately, I do have to get out of here, but I appreciate you letting me sort of hog the podium this week. Yeah, it's good to hear. Appreciate you sharing again. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm Reza. I'm Sandy. Thanks so much for listening. See everyone next week.